Sure, you do the intro, Vlad. We are Hi, live. everyone. Welcome to this live episode of the Manufacturing Hub podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing and recapping a little bit the theme that we had on Hardware Reinvented last month. The goal is to dive a little bit into the conversation we had live with our guests together with Dave, ultimately give our take as well on the industry, as well as ultimately this time on the hardware, but on the topic of hardware reinvented, what we think based on our experience is important, what might be uh, the focus based on different organization levels, and ultimately discuss what hardware in manufacturing looks like. Dave, any other thoughts before we dive into those conversations we've had last month? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, welcome, everyone. Super happy to be here talking and or slightly bickering with Vlad. I will say if you guys are new here, welcome. If you have been here for a while, welcome back. We do, if you guys are new here, generally have a fairly active chat. Please feel free to go ask Vlad and I questions. As we are going through this, feel, please feel free to go ahead and talk and chat amongst yourselves. We have four guests. So we're going to go through the four guests and give a little bit of our thoughts and recap of what we've discussed last month in August, which feels like many shows ago, but was only about a week ago. As, as we go through that, if you guys have thoughts or questions, please feel free to go ahead and drop them in the comments. And while we're doing that, I want to make sure that we thank Corner Automation and Solutions Group for sponsoring this theme. They were new sponsors to us. They were absolutely awesome. Very excited. We'll get to talk about what they're doing. Some of the really interesting all-in-one style applications that they were doing when we get to Chuck and Bill, which was episode two. But let's go ahead and jump in. So first episode, we had David Nichols on. We've had David Nichols on a, a couple of episodes. For longtime listeners, he was on episode 29, episode 53, and this episode 127 that we are talking about. What were your main takeaways from when we had David on, Vlad? I would say to start off a little bit, maybe with David's background, he runs a company called Loop, which in many ways I feel delivers projects that are out of the ordinary. And I've had many conversations with uh, David off stream as well to understand a little bit better what they work on. But I think it was very interesting to hear his thoughts on whether it is software that leads hardware or vice versa. And he has mentioned that he worked on a number of applications in which case they simply could not work with, I want to say, like the most widely adopted hardware in manufacturing. And therefore, they had to specialize in, I don't want to say like niche equipment because those brands are still fairly widely used, but I want to say in control systems that provide like those edge case solutions where you need that sub millisecond precision. You need to be able to do that at scale. You need to be able to control. He gave like a, a use case where precision was key based on the motion and the number of servo drives that they were using. But I think that Loop is certainly doing very interesting things outside of, like I said, the norm of manufacturing, which brings in Again, if I want to pull in like other hardware, such as the Boston Dynamics dog, and again, they're not necessarily all in like a manufacturing facility, but it's still industrial applications that we might not necessarily see in like productions and videos in like theme parks. You don't always realize that industrial hardware is uh, behind what the user is experiencing. So I think that David had a number of interesting applications. I know his company is working on some very cool hardware and software solutions, but I also like the fact that they lead almost with software first 
and therefore they need to make certain hardware decisions in order to reach the capability of that software if i want to put it that way what were your thoughts dave absolutely i i liked as we talked to david very similar to what you're saying like the journey that he had so they do a lot of dnr they, they do a lot of fairly niche hardware at least that metro loop started they've slightly expanded onto the whole avb line at this point but i, I like the, the the comment that david had something to the extent of when they started, they wanted to go replace everything with, with the orange BNR logos. And at some point they realized that it's going to be really difficult to upset all of the, the legacy hardware and software solutions. And they focused on a niche down on the very difficult, very motion heavy, very specific applications that makes their hardware and software solutions shine. And so I thought that was very interesting to, to me. That is that, that very much kind of mirrors down the path of, of what I like to do a lot with clients is that if I am one of many who can go deliver the solution, that's not all that particularly fun to me. I would much prefer to work on a, a really difficult problem that not very many people can go solve and solve that and go work on another difficult problem. So I think it's really interesting what they're doing. When we talk about kind of factory hardware reinvented, I feel like we would almost be negligent to our listeners if we didn't go shout out to the Loop YouTube channel and everything that they're doing with reinventing how they can use robotic arms. So I, I remember last Halloween, and I don't know what they'll do this Halloween, I remember they took a, a very large ABB robotic arm and smashed a pumpkin. And so they get to do a bunch of fun different things. I remember like playing basketball with, with the robotic arm, basically, and We've talked with this, I think, most episodes that we've talked with David, and it's one of those, hey, what do you guys like actually do for work? Because while this is amazing, I'm not sure how easy people can go and like actually make money off of turning robotic arms into basketball hoops. And so it, it's very much a, they get to go showcase really fun, interesting projects to go showcase some of the tools that they've done. And I think they've done like VR or AR goggles and going and controlling the, the robot while using those or while playing games or with video game controllers. They do a bunch of really interesting things. And I don't know how many applications that has for what they're doing with their mostly ABB robots versus what we're going to go see out in the field. But I certainly think that it, it is very interesting and I always love seeing people who can go showcase fun, novel, different approaches. And as Vlad and I both know, it's certainly difficult to go showcase a lot of the projects because a lot of those projects are under 12 layers of NDA. And so you've got to do fun things to go showcase similar use cases. And I think Loop does a really good job showcasing how they are reusing that typical factory hardware into fun, novel approaches to make awesome YouTube videos. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, again, like the comment that I would add, and I think this goes back to the conversation we had not with uh, David, but with Pavel this week, is that I think, and he mentioned this about robotic arms, but I think this goes back to any automation project, really. If you have something that's fairly straightforward and well understood, you can probably choose any platform to get that done, right? But if you have a very niche application, a very specific set of requirements, that's where you need to dig a little bit deeper, both on the hardware and software sides to truly understand how it fits the application, because that edge case is going to offer challenges to just like a vanilla solution. But I think it's also from the company standpoint that's doing the integration work, it offers a little bit of an advantage against someone who's been just deploying these copy paste style of machinery where 
they're probably not going to be able to, let's say, do a very custom palletizer that picks up a, instead of a box, it's picking up like a very specific product with a gripper and needs to move it through three stations, one that identify what identifies one that labels then like packages versus moving a box from place A to place B, as Pavel suggested, anyone can pretty much do that. So I, I think, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that's where I think like the very interesting hardware advancements come into play, uh, especially in our space. Absolutely. Um, I, I would. Absolutely. Yes. Nope. I, I would oh. say absolutely. I'm going to go ahead and transition us to the next one. But, but I, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. And, and I like your comment on kind of the, the novel, different, unique approaches. And that was very interesting when we talked with, with Chuck uh, Ridgeway and Bill Rainier on the episode 128. Uh, so Chuck and Bill both work with Horner and Bill has been running a number of companies focused on going and implementing a bunch of those Horner applications. So Horner does all-in-ones. And I thought it was really interesting because historically they made PLC modules or PLC and other controller modules for a variety of different companies. And then at some point to Chuck's retelling of the story about how Horner got to this place, the United States Postal Service had a requirement out for basically an all-in-one screen and also controller. And there were basically none in the market at that point that could go ahead and make that. And so Horner went and put together a proposal and the Horner's all-in-one is basically based upon the, I don't remember if it was 20 or 30 or 40,000 of these controllers that the United States Postal Service bought over the life of basically rebuilding the distribution centers. So I thought that was a really interesting story of how they got there. And one of my questions for them is, you guys have been building these, these PLC and these other controller modules. How did you opt to get to an all-in-one? So before we jump into them, I guess I want to ask Vlad the question is, Vlad, have you used or experienced many all-in-ones through your controls engineering career? I've certainly seen them in the field. I couldn't tell you that I've personally put a lot of them in or programmed them. I've made tweaks on some of the screens. I think they certainly serve their purpose, again, depending on what's like underneath. I think it makes sense. And it also, again, goes back to what the application is. But I think it's a viable solution. I don't see like why we should not see more of them. But yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. And I, I wanted to throw in this like as well, Dave, is like we talked about the history of Horner. But I think we also discussed some of nuances of how initially they were white labeling some of the modules and maybe like to understand how those relationships operate is really interesting for at least me because i think then it it gives you an idea of how the different manufacturers see the business opportunities and i think they've explained how i can't remember who they were partnered with exactly at the time but that bigger manufacturer yeah. had like a platform and then they were supplying specific modules just like we see now the example i'm familiar with is prosoft with like alan bradley or the ti line the one that's no longer supported by like the siemens like legacy plcs the 505s i'll look up the website but long story short it's interesting how like companies see like these like micro opportunities even when it comes to hardware and they're like hey like you're not going to build this specialty module but we will and so i i like to understand those dynamics from like a business standpoint from what's really allowed not that i'm going to release like my own module but i would want to know let's say if i'm a let's call it an end user and i'm buying a prosoft module to put that in the 
Alan Bradley rack can let's say legally Alan Bradley say we're not going to support them you know what I mean like I like those discussions around like what the longevity of that like even looks like absolutely so I thought it was really interesting uh, if memory serves they were doing I think they were doing some Delta V work and I think they were also doing some GE Fanuc work back in the 90s before that split as well as probably a bunch of other hardware and solutions vendors and, and we did have an interesting discussion as to, to how that worked and to to what the maybe much more fragmented 90s and early 2000s market looked like especially with all of those white labeling hardware and software i'd also like to throw out we had a really interesting conversation on you basically universal io or user configurable io when it came to when it came to that point with chuck and bill but i wanted to throw out a couple of really interesting applications so Bill runs a company and one of the things, Bill runs a couple of companies and, and one of the things that they do is they take the Horner all-in-ones and they provide uh, basically lighting solutions. So to, to Central Southern California, they provide a variety of lighting solutions to allow anyone in the baseball and softball fields to go on and purchase time and go ahead and light the fields and play at night. Dave, it sounds like we lost you a little bit, so I'm going to continue explaining the solution you were uh, discussing on Bill's side. So ultimately, I think that the overall punchline is that they're using industrial hardware and software to control building. So it's BMS, right? That's the acronym, Building Management Systems. And I thought that was very interesting as well, right? And so he provided a couple of reasons as to why. But ultimately, like one of the biggest selling points, at least from my understanding, have not maybe worked in building automation was the fact that industrial hardware is going to be supported for multiple decades, right? And so Bill explained that when they were selling the solution over, let's call it a BMS controller that will probably be cheaper to install immediately, the reality of that industry is that things change fairly quickly and new hardware it needs to be installed, let's call it, again, I don't want to confirm the exact like number of years, but from my understanding, it's probably going to be different within two years, but you probably will need spare parts within three to five years. And those are going to be more difficult to find versus the industrial hardware that is typically supported for at least a couple of decades. And I think that's when uh, Chuck chimed in as well as in one of their priorities. And we had a long discussion on that stream for anyone that's curious is the question of how does a many like manufacturer or producer of some of this hardware looks at obsolescence because ultimately and dave you know this because we've talked a little bit off stream i've been part of discussions and this was with regards to the kinetics and the old 1394 drives from alan bradley then migrating to kinetics 6000 and ultimately now the 5000 series there's been a lot of discussions around how quickly can that hardware be obsoleted. And so it looks like we have lost Dave. Hopefully he comes back in a moment, but we will continue the recap just with me for the moment. I still see us live on the mainstream on his LinkedIn included. That being said, hopefully you guys can stick around. So I'm going to discuss the next episode that we had with Davide. So Davide, 
came and talked to us. So he comes from, or he founded a company called Bright IIoT. What I found particularly interesting is that we didn't necessarily start by focusing on the hardware, but more on his background. So he did a lot of work in Europe before moving to the United States and ultimately settling in Texas. But Davide ultimately was extremely involved and he painted us a really good picture on how his career transitioned from the European market into the US market. And I found that really fascinating. And I think that many people are looking to make that leap. It is certainly very intimidating, but I think that Davide explained to us you know, how he approached it. And I don't think it was a linear path, but he ultimately did some work in Europe that was on different platforms. Uh, obviously, the I want to say the generalities are still replicable, but the control systems are going to be slightly different. So that being said, Dave, what were your maybe thoughts, takeaways from the conversation that we had with Davide primarily before we dive into his comments on the hardware side, but what was his like career path and progression? Absolutely. So I thought it was a very interesting career path and progression as he started in the industrial sector and then knew he wanted to, to come to the United States to do the work, but didn't necessarily speak the language, didn't necessarily have all of the applicable skills and then made the transition over to Puerto Rico, where, as if I remember correctly, he learned to speak Spanish so that he could work there, and he took an opportunity to get closer and closer. So I thought it was a very interesting career progression. We've had a number of conversations with people who have come to the United States based upon their experience, and some of them had more applicable industrial knowledge than others. And so but I always find it very interesting to, to go listen to the, the stories and the reoccurring themes that we have with that we have with that. So I think it's super interesting to hear and listen to, to what Davide did and then his career progression to get back into working in the industrial sector and then going and starting Bright IIoT, his own company. And then just earlier today, as you guys are watching this live, he announced that he has brought on an Italian distributor in order to go help deploy some of their hardware software in the United States. And Davide, you're going to have to forgive me because I don't have that post up in front of me. And I was nece un ne not necessarily prepared to go ahead and make that comment. But yeah, I was not prepared to go make that comment as part of this. And so I thought it was really interesting to go listen to his hardware and, and software experience when it came to that. Did you have any application specific items that you thought were, were very interesting? with with Davide. I think he talked a lot about like edge solutions and he's doing a lot of pick and place like on the vision side which I found really interesting. I for whatever reason thought he was more like of a pure control systems guy and programmed PLCs only, but it was very evident from our conversation that he he does a lot more than that. Yep. So I guess like I found the vision systems very interesting and me and him talked a little bit like offline about some AI solutions in vision that he's, he's looking at, I believe, at FabTag next week. So I think that, again, it's interesting to see like where he's going to go with all of this. But yeah, he's certainly looking at different applications, different solutions, and is working to... And I so I like this, I want to say, like characteristic about him instead of just like pure hardware and software. He's really looking to solve the customer problems first instead of focusing on like a piece of hardware or software. Absolutely. I would agree with that. And then he and I have had some conversations. And so I know he does a bunch of robotics and he goes to look to see where he can compile 
all of those different areas into what he's doing. And it certainly seems like he has found an opportunity and a niche in order to be able to go drive these solutions. And I think that that's a really good point, right? Uh, I think that at the end of the day, we have to go solve customer problems. And as much as we would like to go maybe deploy one piece of hardware, one piece of software into an end user, uh, it, it is very infrequent that we're going to be able to go replace a bunch of hardware and software that any particular group has. It is much more realistic that we've got to go through the process of finding, of figuring out how to go solve a customer problem of where they are, and then maybe being able to de go deploy some of the particular solutions that are within very much our wheelhouse. And so I know that they do a bunch of service work. I know that they do a bunch of let's go deploy and troubleshoot solutions uh, with a variety of different clients. And I think that is, especially for different groups starting out, maybe you're not married to one particular piece of hardware or software, a very good way to go about do and do the business is to go figure out how you can help the clients and then go solve their problems. And if you can go solve their problems, you're almost exclusively going to go find more problems in order to be able to go solve. Definitely, definitely. I, I like that approach. I would also make the comment, he recommended a very interesting book called Winning, which I think I'm at like 80% or so while doing some gym sessions. I think it's a really interesting book. I think that, I guess like it resonates with me what he talked a lot about when it comes to not necessarily just, I want to say like even before the customer first, it's like your family first and your mindset first. And so I think like we sometimes forget and how to say like bite off more than we can chew, but it's important to, to be like very focused on what you're doing, making sure ultimately he had mentioned a couple of examples where he had to take a step back and provide for his family first. And either go back to the drawing board to upskill himself, or like you said, they've learned the language to make sure like he's understood, but ultimately it's that drive to continue to improve, whether it is on the technical side, on the personal side. And so I really like the conversation with Davide for that reason as well. Absolutely. I, I would agree with that. I've known Davide for a couple of years and it's been very interesting to follow along his career and see what he's doing. And I feel like we've, we've talked with, I don't know, a small number of systems integrators over the last 130 episodes at this point. And it's been very interesting to go watch as some of them have opted to go scale up and, and to scale up fairly significantly by bringing more people in. And it's interesting to see the, the choices and how things work out for all of them as they go do, uh, yes, as they go do that. Any other thoughts on our conversation with Davide? No, I guess let's let's dive into the conversation we had with Marcus. I can kick us off if that's uh, fine with you. So Marcus, we had a stream at an earlier time on that Wednesday. I was flying out to the live build, which we will also cover as part of this conversation, but a little bit later. So Marcus, very interesting story as well. So I think that in, in some ways he crosses into what Davide is doing, especially with this new announcement of working with this, uh, I don't want to say Italian, but European manufacturer of PLCs. Marcus also brings in a lot of different solutions from different markets into the US. And so he was talking to us while also on site in San Diego, working on solutions for a customer. But in any case, I think that he has a very interesting array of, I want to say, 
unusual or I, I think like solutions that are more on the cutting edge slash bleeding edge than like your pure vanilla controls. And I think that was very interesting because I, when I even talk to engineering managers or some of my contacts, I usually ask them a question of what do you see coming in the future? And I think we, we ask every guest that question, but he's the guy who's bringing in what's coming into the future today. And so he's got a pretty good pulse on talking about AR, VR. I think you talked about some AI solutions that allow you to, so it, it's not necessarily like the traditional AR, VR, but it allows you to like view, let's say a platform of assembly. And then it projects from what I understood, like either different component part numbers or assembly steps. So I think there's a lot of like really cool stuff he is working on. What were your thoughts, Dave, on that conversation with Marcus and the stuff he's working on? Yeah, I thought it was very interesting that the digital toolkit uh, is, is how I think he put it. And so I thought it was interesting to go talk about how we will go leverage different digital tools to go do some of that hardware reinvention. And especially when it comes to manual processes, how we can go leverage different digital tools to help us through the manual processes. Because at almost at most facilities that I work with, there, there are manual processes, right? Very infrequently is it just push a button and everything runs perfectly. Some of it is we're, we're feeding a bunch of manual raw materials. Some of it may be the line runs generally well, but every time it comes to changeover, we've got to go figure out different ways to go ahead and change over. So I thought that was very interesting. I thought that some of the additive manufacturing that he is doing and working with, additive printing on demand, is, is a very interesting approach. And so it's less of, I've got to go have everything on my shelf and more of how can I perhaps go additively print some of the parts, be it raw materials, be it different parts to different machines. I think it's very interesting kind of the different routes that, that they have gone down. Now, I personally am interested in the concept of additive manufacturing and interested in the how can we perhaps rethink some of the supply chain, perhaps rethink some of how we go do everything but I have not found any particularly great opportunities to go leverage that with any of the manufacturers that I'm using in a production zone, certainly in a prototype sense, certainly in other senses like that. And I've had conversations with different people who are interested in saying, hey, how can I go take additive of some shape and go deliver that into the plant floor? But I, I personally have not seen that work as part of the normal supply chain. Is that something that you have had any more firsthand experience with Flyer? No, not particularly. And I guess like I would say and make the comment that I've worked with fairly like large organizations that aren't as, how to say, they don't adopt those solutions at the plant level as quickly as probably we would all like. And they're going to be a little bit more cautious. And therefore, a lot of those solutions go into R&D centers before they get into the production floor. So I think that I've certainly not had that exposure because of the industries I was in. Absolutely. But I, I guess from my perspective, I think that we'll see more and more of those solutions happen. Especially, I, I know a couple of kind of smaller groups who are doing that and using that on a much smaller scale. And I know some kind of fairly large organizations that as they are ramping up production, 
realize that maybe it's the injection molding, maybe it's another process that they're doing, that they have a particular vendor or a couple of vendors who are very much the constraint in their process. And if they can go find something like additive, that they're able to go leverage that for expedited production opportunities. And I think, especially as we look at things like 3D printing, when we look at the shift to like metal printing, and when we go look at different opportunities along that line, I see just the cost of the machines coming down, right? So it's no longer 50 or 100 or more thousand dollars just to go purchase the machine. It becomes a less expensive machine. And because it becomes a less expensive machine, it's going to continue to open up different opportunities. I've certainly seen different people. I remember Preston Hadley a couple of times has posted some 3D printed parts as to if they were to be in production or as to if they were to be mock-up. I don't particularly remember. But I especially think that there are huge opportunities when we go through and look at that. And when we talk about factory hardware reinvented, I think to, to one of your very early points, Vlad, it becomes a, it's a hardware and software combination that we need in order to go through the process, in order to make our facilities run better and going and looking at different opportunities when it comes to those perspectives. So I'm interested to see, and as we talk about a lot, the marriage of the hardware and the software, especially as we look at outside the, the normal 60 or 80% of, we can basically use any piece of hardware to go do this. When we look to see more of the niche solutions, when we look to see some of the industrial hardware driven to building management, driven to other solutions, I think that it's very interesting to see how people are using and leveraging these technologies. I will add a comment on additive manufacturing and I want to say like CNC machining, whatever all of that bundled is, and maybe give a little bit of a story, which is the point I'm trying to make is I think it's interesting to see that economy where it's distributed, where let's say Vlad can take on a job and machine a certain part based on the request of a company that's nearby and whatnot. And I think we had that discussion with Marcus a little bit. But so in one of the manufacturers and the plants that I've worked with, and again, I'll make the comment before I start the story that I've mostly been responsible for the electrical side, but we had this very particular screw. So imagine a large like plastic screw that needed to essentially space out the product as it moved along the screw, right? So the goal was to space out the product as it moved. So at the beginning, you could probably find product like very close, like touching. And as it moves like through the screw, it's accelerated. So the threading was not standard, right? And, and it's a large screw, right? The diameter, if you look at it from the side, probably like 10 centimeters, let's call it like three inches. And so the learning lesson there was that the mechanical team tried to get that screw manufactured to the tolerances using some of the larger manufacturers, and they simply could not get it done. So they ended up staying with the current vendor, which was like a concern that what happens if this guy that manufactured this screw out of his garage would like something to happen to him, which is why they started looking at other vendors. But they, like I said, they could not replace that. I want to see, I want to say know how of getting those tolerances and whether that is through CNC milling, whether that is through 3D printing or mm -hmm. additive manufacturing. I don't think like that's as that's not as relevant as it is to allow people like that guy who manufactured it to have a platform to be able to, again, produce quality products for manufacturers 
that otherwise wouldn't be able to find uh, the right partner. So I, I thought it was like, I guess I thought you could put in some parameters into your CNC machine and it would just get it done, but it's a lot more complex than that. And there's going to be certainly cases in which a large company, just because they have all the tools, doesn't necessarily have the capability to produce to the tolerances that you need. Absolutely. So I, I spent some time working uh, with a German company who all of the, the drawings uh, from Germany, not only that were they in metric, but they had insane callouts for basically all of the critical tolerances were basically on every single on every single angle of the drawing. And because of that, it made it exceptionally difficult in order to go get it manufactured, basically outside of the one or two manufacturers that existed that went to make it. And there was something ridiculous, I don't know, 60 or 100 weeks of lead time. And this was like 10 years ago. So it's yep. basically don't break these parts. If you break these parts, you better have 12 of them on stock because it's going to take a year or more in order to, to go be made. And so I went through the process of going and talking to a bunch of different groups of, hey, can we go get these manufactured basically anywhere, basically anywhere else. And I talked to the large machine shops and I talked to small machine shops and, and most of them basically just outright rejected it because it was going to be so difficult. And we, we did work with a couple who attempted to go make these and basically they just failed because the, the call outs of the tolerances were much too tight. And Vlad, I, this is looking back into the conversations that we had during it. I'm pretty sure no one was actually making it to the tolerances called out on the drawings. People were just passing these insane parts as close enough on the drawings. Yep. And, and that is part of the reason why. So I, I think when we go look at something like that, it might become a re-engineering problem of, hey, do we need these tolerances to be quite so precise? Or are we just hoping and dreaming as a junior engineer that we would love something to be this perfect and everything to be square and per perpendicular and parallel? And the, the question then becomes, is it actually critically important that the tolerances are called out to what the tolerances are called out. And so I think that there is, looking back at that point on my career, and there is a 0% chance we would have been able to convince the Germans that we didn't need to go through this process. But looking back at that point on my career, it becomes, hey, what do, what, what should we do as we go through this process? What is actually critical? And if it's not critical, can we loosen up the tolerances in order to be able to move through it? But I would say to the story that you had, it becomes very worrisome to large corporations and almost even small corporations of, I have a single vendor. This is the only vendor who can make my part that is critical to my process. Or this is the only vendor who has built this custom software solution. And I have decided to go build a not insignificant part of my company based upon this, what happens if they drop dead? And I think that is something that many groups worry about, both on the hardware and software stage. And as companies grow, it becomes something that is, is more and more critical to the longevity of what happens. And should I single source myself into one vendor, or do I need to go find multiple vendors who know how to go use this software, go build this process, make this hardware, because the last thing you want is something catastrophic to happen. And then your entire facility shuts down for 
two weeks or two years will you go try to replicate this process. But that's the reality of business, though, because I think like from their side, if I'm manufacturing that screw or I'm like providing any software, I want to be the sole supplier of that software, hardware or mechanical component, because then I have a differentiator. So it's a it's a negotiation and a struggle more so than a one way street. Right. Because ultimately you want to be the only supplier so that you could set the price for the end user and the end user wants to have a lot of options so that in case as you said if you fail they can go somewhere else but i i don't think that will change no i think it i think it's the misalignment of interest right if, if i am the end mm -hmm. user i want to be able to go buy my hardware or software from at least two or three different people so I know that if something happens to the supply chain, if something happens to the facility, I mean, I've worked with companies that we were able to purchase something through one facility and the facility burned to the ground, right? I think it's not all that different to the chip crisis that we were going through a couple of years ago and are still going through. There are only so many chip factories. And if a couple of chip factories burn to the ground in China or somewhere over in Asia, then it becomes, hey, there are physically less chips that we can go purchase. If I don't have negotiated agreements with other factories, then I'm just waiting in line to get behind all of the other people that are tr trying to now buy 150% of the capacity of the facility. Yeah, I, I understand your point, but you can't protect yourself like indefinitely, right? No, you, you can't protect yourself indefinitely, but I'm saying that as an OE, as a end user, it makes sense to have more than one vendor who understand can I that can supply you with critical components and it would be a very difficult it would be very difficult to go look at the risks and say yes I have this core risk of I have this one vendor that makes this screw and if this vendor decides to stop making these screws for me for whatever reason then my facility could go down I'm saying that that is a major risk and there would there very much should be some sort of risk mitigation be it you find someone else or you do something in order to make sure that you're not going to go down if that happens i think most facilities don't have that in place but i agree that they probably should absolutely you want to talk do we have any other comments about factory hardware before we go chat about our live build no, like I would say that it was a very interesting theme. Again, I've made that post saying that I think we talk a lot about software and in many ways, I want to say hardware is to some degree led by software requirements because I think that software is what ultimately engineers and like designers work with. And so they run into certain bottlenecks and then they start investigating like what else is possible like on the hardware side. So I think that's why maybe it gets a little bit less recognition. But I also think that we talked about, again, like some interesting solutions that Marcus discussed. And I think David had discussed that I had not known about in the past. So I think in general, there's just, it seems that there's not enough, how would I use, what's the right word? Like dissemination of information about solutions in our industry, I feel. And I guess one of the easiest ways to find out about these solutions is to go to a trade show or do a lot of research online, mm -hmm. but maybe there is a path forward for us to consolidate some of it. Interesting. 
interesting. I agree. I think that there are lots of solutions. And as we will talk about, and I'll go ahead and transition that to the Siemens Live build. One of those things that, that people have heard me say in the past is that I feel like Siemens has a bunch of solutions to so many different things. Uh, unless I know about it, or unless I do a very good job Googling uh, what that is and a Siemens solution, then sometimes I don't run into it. And I think a couple of those solutions that I was unfamiliar with until at least earlier this year is the industrial information hub and the industrial edge applications and solutions that Siemens has. And I, I feel like we we had Chris Liu on right, either at the beginning of this year or the end of last year, and we started talking about the industrial edge. We started talking about kind of their application store. We've had Bobby Cole on talking a little bit about some of the performance insights stuff that he had built, and we had leveraged performance insights for our live builds. And that's one of those. The more we get into some of these solutions, the more it's, wow, these solutions are amazing. I really wish I knew about these solutions in the past. And so I agree. I think that there is, there are still opportunities to go ahead and share what is going on with different solutions and how they apply to a variety of different businesses and business units. But but I will let you go ahead and give an overview of kind of your first thoughts, perhaps on the live build that we did, maybe some of the things that you thought were interesting, things that you learned, et cetera. Yeah, so I was, I want to say, introduced to the Industrial Edge from Siemens earlier this year. So I went through a full training back in the time where a component of it was called MindSphere, which is now the IAH, right? And so no, Mind, I, MindSphere was the applications that run on like on the distributed side, right? So IAH is the connector that is allowing you to essentially like data bus from various like PLCs into the industrial edge. That's right. Okay. But the point is that I had some prior knowledge of the industrial edge, so I wasn't coming in like completely cold. And I also spoke, and I think I mentioned the same to you, Dave, to Caleb Eastman, who's working on some interesting applications on the industrial edge, primarily on the AI side. But he explained the platform fairly well to me on top of the knowledge that I had before. And so I think it was very interesting to see the demo, which also incorporated the virtual PLC, which I think we've seen many people talk about, And but I, I don't think we've seen it run anywhere. And correct me if I'm wrong, Automate may have had a demo of it, but I can't remember if it was controlling any like part of the physical process at Automate, but I think it was running on like Chris's laptop or somebody's laptop like sitting there. But anyways, the point is we, I guess like we saw the actual TA portal program being loaded from the virtual machine into a virtual PLC running on the IPC on top of, or inside of industrial edge, which I thought was really cool. And so ultimately we did a live demo of deploying that application on the IPC. We also connected to an Allen Bradley Micrologics PLC. I think the idea was also to utilize a couple of other connectors. We run out of time, but ultimately the IIH can connect to a bunch of different protocols, a bunch of different vendors. And so it was really cool to see how easy it was and the capabilities it has. I think mm -hmm. that while I say that, I also think that we've also scratched the surface of it. I hope to, and I'm actually like working through this on the side to get access to the industrial edge 
and write a couple of tutorials probably on Solus PLC and dive a little bit deeper into what that looks like. But I think we got a really good preview of like getting that data from a base application, whether it is in TIA portal. So we had also a separate Siemens S7-1200 series PLC from the Micrologix PLC. But ultimately, I think we saw the steps, but I will create like a nice write-up on like what it takes me. And I think we also touched base on like what licenses, how it, what it takes to download the tools, what it takes to configure the tools, the IP addresses, and all of that is available to watch. We will have some links under the description of this episode. But ultimately, I think there's a lot more opportunity in discussing like those segments in greater detail. Absolutely. Now, I thought that the industrial information hub was very interesting. I think that as a connector and as a generally low-priced connector comparative to a lot of other connectors that we've seen, I I think that if more people know about the industrial information hub, more people will go ahead and use the industrial information hub. And as I've talked about kind of edge applications or an edge application store, I think that there are a number of really interesting applications that already exist. Now, I know it doesn't directly replace MindSphere as an edge application store, but the industrial edge is, in my mind, very similar to what we saw with the concept of MindSphere a bunch of years ago. We, we got to use a performance insight, which I thought was very interesting as a platform. And I think Bobby Cole has talked about how he has leveraged uh, performance insight for a number of companies in the past. And I know that they do energy monitoring. Yeah, they've gotten energy monitoring. I've had a conversation with Dallas about what they do with, with energy monitoring. And I think it, it's very interesting. And man, it, it seemed so easy and so straightforward as we had Adam and Arlen there to, to go do the build. I feel like if it is as easy and as straightforward as those guys got to showcase, then we're going to see a lot of people go, going to leverage these solutions into going to leverage these solutions into into the future. I will say I really did enjoy the first virtual PLC build that we got to do. I believe we were the first people to go showcase it. It is still in beta form, as Adam was showing us while we were on there. And I think it was a lot of fun. Honestly, Vlad, for being in V19, which is a beta version of TIA Portal, for being a beta version of a virtual PLC for running on the, the IPCs that were there sitting in front of us, I thought we were going to have a lot more difficulties with that part of it, right? I thought that there was a, a fairly decent chance that we would run into something that was a problem that we would have to go through and work through the problem. But I thought that was as easy and as straightforward as possible. So I look forward to going and continuing to see what happens with the VPLC, how people are going to go use that. If we see people going to use instances to go do testing, if we see people using instances to go have redundancy, if we see potentially a couple of VPLCs running on IPCs as almost like a, a hardware cluster of redundancy into the future, I, I think that there are a bunch of different interesting ways that folks have currently thought about it at Siemens, how, how people use it. And from what I see, I would imagine that there are going to be a bunch of very interesting different applications that we are going to go see from everyone as we get into the hands of real users to see what real users are doing with that. But 
generally speaking, I, I had a ton of fun with that. Uh, it, it is always a learning experience when we go through that. And as I think I said during the live build, I feel like every time we get a little bit further into it, it's always, oh, there are different things to learn. But man, I'd really love to be able to go leverage that in a variety of different applications and a variety of different solutions. So I would imagine that while well, this is the first that folks have heard from us of the VPLC on the build and the IIH and the industrial information or of the IIH and the industrial edge applications, it will certainly not be the last that people see from us on this channel and on our channels in general. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, again, having worked with data solutions, I understand very well what it takes to consume, transform, and ultimately send or present industrial data. So I have, I want to say, a personal interest in, in industrial edge. And I think that we, again, have presented a implementation that is, I don't want to say like fairly straightforward, still I want to say on the easy to intermediate side, I think that a lot more can be done. And we've discussed certainly that depending on, again, the application, you can upsize the IPC. There's even like rack mounted IPCs. There's a whole array of different like applications that you can buy. I think we've only probably touched on one or 2% of them. So a lot more can be done. And I certainly see the advantage of, again, the way they're deploying the applications too is very interesting. So what we didn't, I guess we've explained it, but we didn't see, let's say, Adam deploy that IEM management solution on his laptop, right? So he had a piece of software inside of his VM. And ultimately we had only one IPC, which we've showed like how to deploy from the IEM, but you could orchestrate the deployment of multiple uh, of those devices. And I think that's going to be like a huge important component. I don't think that any current hardware manufacturers, at least like from what I've seen, give you a tool like that out of the box. So I know that in the Rockwell world, you can manage, let's say like you can version control the software, but that doesn't mean that it auto connects to your PLCs and monitors their state. And you can write, let's say like a different firmware into it. You can schedule a firmware update. I think that level of orchestration is only seen on the software side. And I think that Siemens is intent with this platform is also to make that available for the, the IPCs. And I think it makes sense as well because they're Linux based. So there's tools, I want to say it, it's a solved problem in some ways in the software world. Absolutely. I think it's very much a software of the manager. I think that's very much a software solution. We've seen it on the IT side. I've seen it on a number of different industrial solutions on the OT side. But again, that is very much a software tool. And I look forward to seeing how those software and how those historic IT solutions are going to get continue to be rolled out into our space. I will say, Vlad, I see a little bit of space over your shoulder. I, I don't know if we can fit an entire rack mounted solution uh, to throw just an entire rack mount of IP, IPCs over your right or maybe it is left shoulder right above that HMI. But, but I'm just saying, guys, there is like a foot and a half, maybe three feet of room to go fill some more of Vlad's hardware space on the wall behind him, if anyone uh, listening is interested in doing so. Yeah, I've already sent some requests. I, like I said, I think that there's something extremely interesting here. I think that there's an opportunity also to be early on to educate the people 
on the solutions. And so we're going to put some effort into the industrial edge and I'm looking at, at getting some hardware installed here. Absolutely. No, I think that this has been great. Vlad, do you have any last comments before we say goodbye to everyone? No, I think again, like it was a really good month, a lot of hectic, I want to say travels for that live build. We'll spare you all the details. I think it went ultimately really well. We had some initial concerns, but we're very happy with the results it brought. I think that it was fairly active both on YouTube as well as LinkedIn. We did our best, I think, like to pull in as many comments as we could. And we pulled in a lot of the questions that you guys have. If you have anything else when it comes to the conversations we've had last month, if it's about the hardware, if it is about any of the individuals we talked to, or if it's for me and Dave and or the Industrial Edge, more than happy to discuss that. So don't hesitate to reach out. Always willing to talk manufacturing. Absolutely. And then I will say, if anyone wants to go rewatch the Siemens Live Builders episode 131, you can find it here on LinkedIn, but you can also go to the Manufacturing Hub YouTube channel, which is where we have all of that content. So you guys can go ahead and rewatch all of that live. It will live there forever as a place for you guys to go ahead and watch all of that. And I will again like to thank Corner Automation and Solutions Group for sponsoring our industrial hardware our factory hardware reinvented theme. It was an awesome one. Thank you guys for going ahead and doing this. Looking forward to continuing those conversations. If you guys have made it this far, please make sure you're following, you're connected with Vlad and myself. You're following Manufacturing Hub Network on LinkedIn. Yeah, and please feel free to go ahead and subscribe if you guys are watching on YouTube. If you guys have made it this far in podcast form, I will ask you guys to go rate us five stars to go and share and all of those other things. It helps as we continue to get the message out to other people. As a note for anyone listening, we will be off next week. Uh, we, we will be off next week, but we will be back with robotics the week of the 18th. Until then, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, everyone.